The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The first successful launch of a drone off a C-130 is complete. The hour-and-a-half test included an X-61A Gremlins vehicle. Defense News reports the next test will be sometime this spring. Air Force Chief of Staff General David Goldfein doesn't plan to push for the Air Force to get a bigger share of the Pentagon's 2020 budget. He says the fiscal 2021 budget request for the Air Force will include a balance of legacy programs and new technology. Defense News reports Goldfein says the Air Force does need more money than it's getting now. Former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs is joining the board of Lockheed Martin. General Joseph Dunford retired from the Marine Corps in October. He'll serve on Lockheed's Classified Business and Security Committee and its Nominating and Corporate Governance Committee. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday says the Navy needs more money if it's going to build up to a 355-ship fleet. Pentagon leaders haven't said yet whether there'll be enough money to execute the fleet in the national defense strategy. Bri uh, Commander Brian McGrath, U.S. Navy retired, is managing director at the Ferry Bridge Group. He's former director of the Navy's Strategic Actions Group. Brian, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming in. You. What's your take on all of this discussion back and forth, how much each branch should get, what the construct looks like in the Navy's fleet. How do you piece all this together, Brian? I look back over the time since the fall of the wall, and no matter what our defense strategy has been, whether we were uh, reaping a, a peace dividend or fighting a global war on terror or uh, limbering up for great power competition, the, the proportions uh, allotted to the Department of Army, Department of the Navy, Department of the Air Force, and defense agencies remain relatively similar. That has always struck me as being odd, and it's no less odd today than it has been in the past. Why does that strike you as odd? Because I think the national defense strategy of the country our, and our geography argue for a much heavier reliance on sea power. Sea power that's bound up in the forces of the Navy and the Marine Corps within the Department of Defense. Which, so the so the power of the Marine Corps is uh, not up in the air, but is uh, open to discussion right now because of the new uh, strategy that Commander, uh, Commandant Berger has released. How does that fit into the overall sea power of the Navy in your it view? It fits perfectly. In fact, it is, it, it is and should be the basis for uh, the way the Department of the Navy operates resources, plans, executes. Uh, what, the, what the Commandant is saying is that the Navy and Marine Corps together, uh, when they operate around the world, can form the basis of this country's primary conventional deterrent force. And uh, the Marine Corps had spent so much time ashore acting as a second land army that they had become less of a naval weapon system. But at its heart, the Marine Corps is a naval weapon system. And Commandant Berger recognizes that. What's your sense of uh, the back and forth between the Office of Management and Budget, the Navy, about what a 355-ship fleet looks like, whether it should be that? Admiral Richardson was pretty clear before he uh, left as the Chief of Naval Operations, that's the right number. 
Admiral Gilday's talked about it since he's been in. Now we're not sure, I guess, what the White House, the administration really think of that number and yeah. what the construct looks like underneath it. Whole lot of inputs to this problem. Um, Admiral Richardson's 355 ship Navy was a 2016 artifact, late 2016 artifact. Uh, that was essentially um, uh, created as a way of, uh, of growing a Navy in con consonance with a new president's uh, desires for a larger Navy. Uh, General Berger changed the game when he came in as the commandant and said, we need this integrated uh, sea power force. So in my view, whatever the Navy was looking at as a force structure assessment before that day, I know they wanted to do, they were doing one and they wanted to release them, release one, but when the commandant made his planning guidance, the game changed and now the Navy and the Marine Corps are more closely planning a future force. Um, exact number, I don't know what it's going to be. If it's smaller than what we have now, I would be shocked. The problem is there just isn't the money for it. Mm -hmm. My calculation is that the ownership costs of a 355 ship Navy are about $40 billion more a year uh, than uh, the current force, just sort of inflated constant dollars. Um, I don't know anybody who's willing to hand the Navy $40 billion more every year. The issue about the 355 ship fleet is that it strikes me that observers like me go to the number first and the capability later. I don't imagine that's what's happening inside the Navy, but that strikes me as the more useful discussion is what do we want the Navy to do? Where do we want them to do it? And that informs what the fleet should be, and then you get to the number. Am I thinking about it the right way? I think you're thinking about it in the right order. The problem, though, is that when we think about it, even in a coherent manner, uh, our biases come forward, and we get the, the, you get the capability versus capacity argument that mm -hmm. comes up. And uh, I'm not interested in that argument. We need both. Uh, a ship can only be in one place at a time. And if you, if you intend to use that ship as a means of influencing some other nation's behavior, it has to be proximate to something that that government values. Mm -hmm. And that drives numbers. Numbers alone isn't, isn't enough because just you know ships floating around without any weapons on them aren't, aren't an effective deterrent. They have to be lethal. They have to have reach. They have to be networked. Uh, all of those things come in. So this capability versus capacity argument is a false choice. We have about a minute left, and to that end, I, I note as you're describing that, that construct, everybody, I think, that pays attention knows that 355 is the number in the fleet that, that the fleet is aiming for. I don't think anybody would be able to name, except really people who are on that issue, for example, how many airplanes should the Navy own to, to populate that fleet? That's the kind of thing that you're talking about. It a ship like. count is a very unsatisfying way of quantifying the size and power of a Navy. The problem is it's better than any other method that has yet been devised. I don't think that there is not a potential method that takes networking airplanes and other capability into consideration. I just haven't seen a good effort to arrive at that model. In 15 seconds left, where's the biggest gap in your view right now in the fleet? If it has to focus in one particular area to build it out, what would you like to see more of? ISRNT, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and targeting. Brian, thanks very much. Yes, Great sir. to have Good you. Good to talk to you.
Up next, using artificial intelligence in the national security community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the new technology will sharpen the tip of the spear. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Defense Department Chief Information Officer Dana Deasy says the first lethality project in the joint warfighter targeting space will start by the end of 2020. But the Defense Department and the intelligence community have been careful to say that bots will never push the button. Melanie Sisson is Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Strategy and Planning Program at the Stimson Center. Melanie, welcome. It's great to have you back. That sensitivity about who pushes the button is predominant, I think, in the AI discussion. What are you following, what are you looking at regarding the use of AI in both the intelligence community and the Defense Department? Yeah, thanks, Francis. I think that's really true, um, that this question about lethal autonomous weapons and the human on the loop and who pushes the button question really takes up a lot of the oxygen in the space. Mm -hmm. um, it is certainly important. Artificial intelligence, as we understand it, is a human construct, right? It's built by humans. It's not endowed by nature, so it is subject to ethical scrutiny, and those conversations should be ongoing. What I'm interested in with artificial intelligence, and by that I mean very specifically advanced computer science, mm -hmm. right, and its ability to help us capture, process, understand, and use information in a way that, that has not been available to us before, is to think about it more broadly. Um, you know, the Defense Department is an enterprise, right? It, and so we, we want to be able to use data as an enterprise asset and create efficiencies. So it's not just about the direct kinetic warfighting capabilities. Um, and I know the department is, bro is broad in its scope about how it's thinking all of these things. But those are mm -hmm. the things that I'm most interested in watching as they emerge. One of the big things, the way this kind of got on the radar screen was Bob Work as the Deputy Secretary saying, we're in this great power competition with uh, Russia and China. He didn't call it that, but uh, the third offset begins. And I wonder if that's the right approach at this point. And it was the right approach then, seemingly, by popular acclaim. I wonder if that's still the right way to think about this today, that we're fighting a race, we're running a race against China and Russia in AI. Um, it's a, it's a, a great question, and I really like when this presents itself, um, because I think that um, the race analogy is actually not particularly useful. We are certainly in competition, as we always have been, right? Um, but fundamentally, we're not in an AI race. It's not going to look the same as a nuclear arms race, for example. AI um, is so manifold in its manifestations. It is so diverse. It is a form of human creativity in mm -hmm. a way, right? Um, and it's not going to confine and shape itself to, to sort of governmental control the way these other systems did. The way I prefer to think about it, if we're in a race for anything and it's in a, being in a race for efficiency mm -hmm. again um, and we're in a race for efficiency not only against China but against history mm -hmm. right we live in a world of constrained resources we've got to be able to make the most of our uh, of the assets that are available to us being able to use data through artificial intelligence and other techniques to be more efficient in our business processes to be more strategic in what we invest in to be more strategic in the weapon systems that we think we need to f field in order to compete um, in the space with China. That's that's where I'd like to, to locate the conversation. So the underlying theme then of what you're talking about is not just uh, competition over efficiency, but also over capability. Maybe we focus too much on the AI itself and not what you said, manifestations is a great word, 
um, what the artificial intelligence can deliver for the warfighter, and that's where the tip of the spear phrase comes in, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. Um, so what I would call all of that, in terms of understanding what kind of capabilities um, the advanced computer science techniques will be able to, to deliver for us, is we're in a very much a discovery phase. And I think the department is has been good on this, right? I think there's a lot of outreach um, at the service level, at the joint level, um, and more and broadly, generally speaking, to try to learn what technologists are doing to access the tech ecosphere, right? To understand what tools and resources um, are available mm -hmm. and how they might be applicable to questions of national security. So the, the underlying thing then, there's an infrastructure and a framework that's going to be required here to make this work. Training, doctrine, and all of that. What does that look like in your view today, and what does it look like in a successful state at some point in the future? Yeah, I think what it looks like today is a growing recognition that we need those things. You see the services starting to think about tech systems um, and advanced data science, for example, as ways to um, help their services do what they need to do. The Army, I know, is doing this with their personnel management system, right? There are places where we're doing it with supply chain management, um, maintenance, um, a lot of those sorts of areas. We're, we're on the path, right? It will require getting a handle on um, the data that is generated by the department, understanding where it's not currently being corralled, accessed, and used in a way that it might be, mm -hmm. and then acquiring the technology tools, getting them native into the department, um, and training up the human talent to be able to use them, right? That's where the expertise is. That's where we're going to be able to need to do those analyses. We have about a minute left. You've used the word data about five times in mm -hmm. our conversation by my count so far. Do we lose sight of the data being the point of the artificial intelligence tool or, uh, and maybe focus too much on the AI itself? Yeah, I think that it, that comes from this notion that AI is a thing, right? AI is not a thing. It's a suite of techniques, right, applied on data, right? And um, so if we don't think about the data, what data we need, what kinds of questions we need to ask from it, then the AI techniques are not meaningful, mm -hmm. right? Because they're meant to enable functions. But it's humans, it's the decision makers that need to understand what functions we need strategically um, and to think strategically about how to fulfill those by accessing those technology capabilities. Final thought, about 30 seconds, Melanie. What's the biggest gap between where the department is today and where the national security community is today on AI? and where you would like to see it at some point in the future at some mature state. Yeah. I think that there the the most the gap that I'm most concerned with but that happily I think is it can be remedied is um, an education gap for policymakers, decision makers, leaders who simply, you know, were educated in a time in a way where these advanced techniques did not exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a need for the that information, that education to suffuse the decision making level. This was very similar to what happened in the nuclear age, right? We needed to cross pollinate science with policy making and we're in a we're in a, a reinvigoration of that kind of phase, I think. Melanie Sisson, thanks very much. Thank you. Up next, getting hypersonic missiles ready for testing. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new technology and when you should expect it to work. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Department has at least four flight tests for hypersonic weapons on the way this year. The department says the new glide bombs will contribute to executing the great power competition in the national defense strategy. 
Tony Capasio is defense reporter at Bloomberg News. Tony, thanks very much for coming back. Thank you for What's the me. story behind the hypersonic weapons? This is something the Pentagon's been working on for years and years Episo and years. And they've been episodically working on, on, mm. off and on for a number of years. The last test of any note was in October of 2017. It was a Navy test. But now, this year, the Esper the Pentagon basically is going to accelerate flight testing of some high-profile systems that the Army, Navy, and Air Force are developing. DARPA is also developing. And while this is not an arms race at this point, I think it's a message to China that we're in the game also, China and Russia. The, the, the thing that the Pentagon's going to need to do is prep the battlefield. They need to let the public know these are prototypes that could very they could crash and go boom in the night, mm -hmm. basically. And they're not meant to be operationally effective weapons. They're the, the designed basically to show the concept works when you're flying five times the speed of sound. If I recall correctly, hypersonic weapons were the system to which Senator Angus King referred when he talked about the fact that we spent ten times as much as Russia and China, and, and they've, got, they've fielded these weapons mm -hmm. already. What's the catch-up rate that the Defense Department will have to play, or are they not looking at it that way? I don't think they're looking at it that way, because, but King's, his point is well, well taken. These weapons, Russia said they fielded a, uh, an avant-garde glide warhead on the SS-19 a month or two ago. Uh, that was not considered a Sputnik moment by the Pentagon because they were aware that the Russians were working on this. But these, these haven't had a major advocate within the Pentagon until Michael Griffin came, the former NASA director who's now the head of research and development. Two years ago, he told the industry, we're elevating this to our top research priority. Yesterday, Lockheed Martin's Marilyn Houston, the head of the company, said they've accumulated about $4 billion in business in 2019 because of hypersonics. So the race is on for those industry dollars, if nothing else. Um, I want to continue to follow that story, and you'll keep me updated on that, I'm sure. You're also reporting on $35 trillion of accounting changes coming down from the Pentagon. What's behind this, Tony? So this is an interesting one that I am not an accountant, but I learned more about joint, uh, joint vouchers and plugs <laughs> than I ever wanted to learn from a GAO report that was released about a week and a half ago. They didn't have the numbers in the report, though. I ferreted it out on my own, and the DOD did acknowledge the adjustments. When the Army, Navy, and the Air Force do their books, they send those books to the Defense Finance and Accounting Service. Those books have to be reconciled because their systems are so, they don't talk to each other, basically. Mm -hmm. They're not meant for this type of, the current accounting systems and current rules. So the Pentagon, the DFAS and the services have had to make accounting adjustments something like half a, tr half a million of them in eight, 17 and 18. They've dropped in 2019. But these cumulative adjustments, hard to get your hands around though, but these puts and takes have added, accounted for $35 trillion of absolute figure dollars. Mm -hmm. They're not net. 35 in 2019, 30 in 2018, about 29 and 21 in 2017. The Pentagon prior to 2017 had, made a, had not made a concerted effort to track these. Mm -hmm. So these are all puts and takes, the size and scope of which are alarming, confounding, confusing, and uh, they spell trouble with a capital T. Even in the context of the Pentagon, these are big numbers. I mean, we, we often say, well, in the context of the, de of the Defense Department budget, X is not a big number. This is a big number. What's the implication here as we're about to see, supposedly within the next couple of weeks, a fiscal 2021 budget request? Okay, so $35 trillion is roughly the equivalent of the, the, the defense budget from 1960 through 
2019 and in 2019 dollars. This is from Todd Harrison at CSIS. The implication is this. The budget caps that have constrained and scared the hell out of the Pentagon for the last 10 years are off in 21. The budget, the top line is going to be $740 billion for national defense writ large. So Secretary Esper is going to have to show the Congress we're going to be good stewards of this huge amount of money now that the caps are off. And one way you show stewardship is to show that your books are in line, mm -hmm. that you can, you can develop consolidated books, your general ledger accounts and your accounting systems that are presented to the Treasury that reasonably reflect the puts and takes in the accounts within the Pentagon and the military services. So it's a good stewardship issue. Mm -hmm. We have about a minute left, Tony. What are you watching moving forward on these or anything else that's all across the radar screen in the department? Well, I think the budget's going to be, this is good. Secretary Esper's in an off, been in office for six months, so it's really unfair to say what are his accomplishments because he's been putting out fires left and right. Mm -hmm. One major accomplishment, he's opened up the Pentagon. He's dematicized the Pentagon. More press conferences, more press availabilities, more officials out there. But I'm also going to be watching, in the, the budget that comes out, the arguments they're going to be making now in terms of why we need more than we're requesting. Mm -hmm. This is at a time when the Trump administration is cutting back, wants to cut back on food stamp eligibility. So he's going to have to be persuasive in terms of why can't we live with the budget agreement from last year? Because I guarantee they're going to come out and say we need more. You've been following this for a long time. Is there, do you see the discussion about how much the Navy gets, Army gets, Air Force gets as a big deal, or is this kind of de rigueur? I think it's, it happens a lot. It came up recently because... Uh, the CNO brought it up, the CNO, Michael Gilday, and then the Army Secretary was asked about this at a defense breakfast I was with, and he gave an answer saying, no, no, we've had, we, we haven't had an equal share. So it's a, a Washington Hall and Mears fight that'll uh, disappear when the budget comes out. Tony, great to have you on as always. Thank you. Thanks for me. If you've missed the show, you're on the go. You can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson, here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, you offer something called Infinity Total Protection. What does that involve? The Infinity Total Protection provides a per-user pricing model for end-to-end -end security fabric. And by this I mean your firewalls, your VPN, your IPS, 
but also your cloud security, your endpoint security, and your application security. What this provides is a very well-rounded uh, protective fabric that's got a single pane of glass, so it's easy to reduce your operating costs. For small to medium agencies, this is extremely valuable. It also means a predictable cost over a multi-year period, which often can save an agency 20 to 30% of their total cost investment in security. Wow. So talk about that nexus there, Jeremy, between security and operational value. What should our listeners know here? Well, as Sean mentioned, the ease of management's great, but it also provides you that full spectrum of the Checkpoint software portfolio. And this gives you a uniform security posture across your entire environment, and it keeps, we keep it up to date with the latest uh, Gen 5 advanced threat protection. Hmm. So what about endpoints, Sean? How does this affect or impact visibility? Yeah, at the endpoints where your users sit is often the first point of attack. Having the protective fabric, the sandboxing on a phone or an endpoint, allows this fabric to discover zero-day attacks extremely quickly in an endpoint sandbox, explode those devices, find those first-day attacks or zero-day attacks, feed them into a threat intelligence cloud, and then inform the rest of the fabric in near real-time. What this means is a small to meet agency can have an attack identified intelligently at the edge and then notified and updating the whole fabric as a community, so a much more proactive approach. Great info, Sean, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.